BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey, everybody, from KQED Public Radio, it's Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. On today's show, it is the end of an era in California politics. After 30 years in the U.S. Senate, Dianne Feinstein says she will not run for re-election. It's something we've been expecting for a while. And we have indeed. It came in a tweet and a written message from her office, the 89-year-old Democrat, saying she would serve out the rest of her term and not step down early, which some people would have liked, uh, despite reports that uh, she's had some serious problems with her memory in recent years. Uh, And of course, the announcement officially opens up the race for her <laughs> seat. But of course, uh, Adam Schiff and Katie Porter weren't waiting around. They had already announced. Um, and we expect Oakland Congresswoman Barbara Lee to file. Well, she filed papers already, and she's going to formally announce soon. We'll get to that in a minute, Marisa. But you know, we had some big news out of Oakland this week. Mayor Shang Tao, she's been in office less than a couple months. She fired the police chief, Laron Armstrong. He had been on paid administrative leave for almost a month. Um, we've, uh, As you know, there's been an independent report that said he had mishandled a couple of investigations of a police officer, uh, but very controversial uh, decision. And, you know, Armstrong had a lot of support in the black community and also in the Asian business community and elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, this has become incredibly politically sticky for the new mayor, um, who, you know, I think really probably didn't want this to be the first thing on her desk, oh, even she, if she, she told us she wanted to keep him. Right. Or she was. Yeah, I think she was. That was her plan. Um, and then this kind of all blew up. You know, I think it's important to note the reason that these reports were released, that they exist in the first place, is that Oakland has Oakland police have been under federal oversight for two decades. Uh, that was the result of uh, a really uh, huge investigation into what was known as the writers. People accuse Oakland police officers of planting drugs on them. Um, and it really, you know, I think the end was in sight uh, for Oakland, and this has kind of reopened a lot of simmering issues. And, you know, you say there is a lot of support for her, uh, her, you know, for him to stay. There's also a lot of support, especially from reformers who have pushed the department for this decision. Yeah. And I, and I think also, you know, he really waged a, cam- a very public campaign. Yes. He hired a PR guy, Sam Singer, to push his, you know, the case, make the case to have him reinstated. And I'm not sure that really worked to his advantage because, you know, mayors, I think, don't like being pressured in public like that. It made him look overtly political, which police chiefs, you know, generally aren't supposed to be. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure that ultimately, you know, really worked in his favor. 
I agree. I think that could have really, I think, and just, you know, the the sort of strength of <laughs> the arguments he brought to it. He accused the federal receiver of essentially drawing this out in order to keep making money off the taxpayers. Um, you know, at the core of this whole investigation into this officer who both, uh, you know, had this hit and run that was not reported until it was basically called out um, and then shot uh, around at an elevator in OPD headquarters and didn't tell anybody through the bullet casings off the Bay Bridge and then kind of came forward a week or two later. Uh, You know, those are not necessarily the the sort of horrible police accountability things we hear about, right? Officer-involved shootings and things. But what the reports really drilled down on was this question of whether Internal Affairs was interested in uncovering the truth and getting to the bottom of this and whether officers up and down the rank and file actually were truthful when this was being you know, investigated. And I do think that even if you like this chief, uh, those those questions are important given the history in this case, that this was really about officer conduct from the get go. And the question is, like, are they in a place where they can police themselves? Yeah. And it looked like he dismissed the case, closed the case before really looking at all the evidence, kind of, a you know, made a judgment maybe too quickly or incompletely. Um, and, you know, th- you know, from the mayor's perspective, I mean, this also comes at a time when public safety was a big issue in her campaign. Uh, morale in the department, probably not mm-hmm. great. Uh, staffing also and, and, and the difficulty of attracting new officers to a city like Oakland, especially one that has gone through, churned through like chief after chief after chief, you know. So it's it, it is a, it's a tough time and uh, yeah. we'll see how it shakes out over there. But um, yeah, I'm sure that is not the first thing she wanted to do. Now it's her problem. Right. In a sense. She's, she's going to she's going to yeah. she's going to own it. You know? But also, I think that this does speak to, you know, however you feel about Chief Armstrong and uh, Mayor Tao's decision. This is not just about his leadership. It is about the culture of a department. And I think the question, you know, the taxpayers and, and folks in Oakland are probably asking is like, have we made big enough strides after 20 years? Because Armstrong is gone now. But most of the people or a lot of the people involved in these investigations will be there. And, and and I think this gets to the core of like what is so hard to change in policing and law enforcement, which is it does really go beyond one person, um, you know, one type of person. It is often about this culture. culture. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I think this incident alone would not have been enough to put the department in federal receivership, no. uh, you know, uh, compared to the writers scandal of 20 years ago. It's relatively minor uh, and nothing. Nothing like what we've seen in other police departments with deadly use of force and, you know, tasing and the terrible beating of Tyree Nichols. But, you know, it shows, you know, that how once you're under that microscope, as they are, everything you do is going to be watched. And the chief should have known that. Yeah. All right. Well, let's pivot uh, to the big news this week, as you said at the top, political earthquake. Um, Not shocking, but we you know, had been hearing for weeks that that Senator Feinstein was sort of resisting these calls to make uh, this announcement about her plans. Um, I want to talk, though, Scott, about her life, because I think both of us, you know, covered this news as it broke on Tuesday. And I think a lot of the conversation in recent years overshadows what a remarkable life and career Feinstein has had. And going back to the beginning, I mean, she grew up with an abusive, mentally ill mother. She talked to us about that several years ago. And she ended up at Stanford in the 1950s. I can't imagine there were a lot of women around her. No, and studying political science. uh, She got involved in politics quite young. Pat Brown, the governor, appointed her to a parole board 
Ford uh, in the early 1960s. And interestingly, Willie Brown told me a story about Dianne Feinstein and how they met. Willie Brown uh, had been denied an opportunity to buy a house up in Forest Knolls, uh, a relatively conservative part of the city, especially back in the 60s. And there was a rally on his behalf. I assume because he was black. Because he was black. And, you know, who shows up with pushing a baby stroller at that rally? Diane Feinstein. Wow. And he was very impressed with her. They became friends. She he endorsed her first run for the board of supervisors where she, you know, became board president, first woman in that job. Huge upset. I mean, nobody really covered her campaign and then she ended up with the most votes which made yeah. her board president. And she did it more than once and of course she was board president when the assassinations happened in 1978. I think anyone who's heard or seen that footage of her and making the announcement, you'll just never forget it. But she was a trailblazer. There's no question about it. Not just in the Senate, although she was. She and Barbara Boxer, you know, we'll get to her career in the Senate a little bit later. But, you know, as mayor, she definitely governed from the center. You know, mm-hmm. she was not and never has been like a, a real... She's hard to pin down. I mean, that's what really strikes you when you look back at this. You know, in her first campaign, she did seek a lot of support from the gay community. She later angered that community by vetoing a domestic, domestic partnership uh, type law in the 80s. Uh, but I also think you have to think about the time. I mean, the Milk Moscone assassinations, you know, we all know very well. But there was a ton going on. Jonestown, the Z- Zebra killings. I mean, the just it was a really tumultuous political time in San Francisco. And she really stepped up after those assassinations and, you know, kind of steadied the ship. No, exactly. And I think that's really what cemented her reputation as somebody who was a strong woman. She didn't govern as a female mayor or a female senator. She was she was very tough. She was very close to law enforcement. She would show up at fires all the time when she was mayor. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was but very she also was strong on the environment, gun control. I mean, yeah, she, like, again, yeah, she so sort of, kind of mixed, kind yeah. of mixed. But I think for San Francisco, you know, she was very perceived as being pro-development at a time. You know, there was the phrase, don't allow the Manhattanization right. of San Francisco. And she was very much pro-development. Now, looking back, you might say that was the right thing. But at the time, she was seen by progressives as a real, not a friend. Yeah. Not a friend. Well, and I think, too, I mean, thinking about, you know, her legacy, obviously, she was thrust into the mayorship because of a horrific uh, attack with a firearm, um, you know, shortly after getting to the Senate, the 101 California massacre happened. And, you know, but before even that, she faced a recall because she wanted to ban, I think, handguns. Exactly. Yeah. There was this fringe group, the White Panthers. Uh, I mean, this cracks me up. I I remember them because they had a food uh, program in the Haight-Ashbury. And I happened to live there in the early 80s. I used to go to their garage and get like boxes of food. They were pro-gun, very pro-gun extremists. And and they managed to collect signatures. But right? No, they were right wing. They were pretty right. Um, Again, maybe hard to pin down, but they were very pro-gun. And uh, well, the New York Times actually characterized it as pro-gun communist who who ran the recall. Well, they also they they kind of colluded with the gay community, which, as you said, was upset at her for not signing that uh, gay rights bill, the domestic partners law. And she beat it back like 83 percent no vote. It was and in fact, it kind of cleared the field. She was easily reelected in the next election. A lot of folks were angry at the White Panthers because they thought maybe she could have had a strong liberal challenger. You know, she she replaced George Moscone, who was very progressive. 
Uh, but she, you know, she hung in there, got reelected and reelected again. She was on the short list to, for Walter Mondale to right. be vice president when San Francisco hosted the Democratic Convention here in 84. So, yeah, she's had an amazing career even before she left right. San Francisco. And we should say before she left San Francisco, she ran unsuccessfully for governor. But she did win in 92 fall alongside Barbara Boxer, the first time in U.S. history that two women ever represented a single state in the Senate. It was also a record number of female senators, six at the time. Uh, and up from two. Up from two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, I do think, uh, again, gun control is a huge part of her legacy. She helped pass the now expired assault weapons weapons ban in 1994. The environment, uh, a lot of, you know, bills, um, including the California Desert Protection Act, a lot of work around Lake Tahoe. But I think, you know, something that she wants to be most remembered for and, and, and I think really is worth spending a moment on is her fight against the CIA to release that torture report, yeah. um, you know, and that was she took on her own party. The Obama administration did not want that out there. She was the ranking Democrat on, on the Senate Intelligence Committee, and she insisted on overseeing this very con- thousands of page report. And she talked about it on the Senate floor, very dramatic, saying how important it was to restore American values and uh, you know transparency for the CIA. And uh, it was very you know very controversial, as you said. She also defied her own party on things on the other side, uh, like she was very pro death penalty, mm-hmm. and when she. She ran for governor in California. She made a, She went to the convention, the Democratic State Party convention, and said, I'm for the death penalty. And they booed her, and she turned it into a commercial. Totally. <laughs> they knew she, she was going to get booed. So, yeah, like you said, it was kind of all over the map a little bit. I mean, she was, you know, disappointed liberals, but also was a champion for women's rights and abortion rights. And really, I think one of some of the comments I've seen from people who have watched her, you know, this idea that she was not ha- okay being pigeonholed, that she wasn't going to just go to the Senate and work on, quote, unquote, women's issues. Issues. She was going to work on the issues that she believed in. Um, right before we go to break, I just remember one funny story when I was a young Chronicle reporter writing about the bison in Golden Gate Park, and I dug up some old coverage about how basically they um, they, they were down to like one bison when she was mayor, and she was jogging through the park in her uh, tracksuit with a detail behind her, and she noticed it, and uh, Dick Blum helped. Bring back her bring husband. Back the, bring, bring back, back the, the bison. bison. So. Yeah, she saved the cable cars. You know, there she really she Candlestick cared. Park. Yeah. Candlestick Park. So a lot, lot for her to be proud of, uh, even though the last few years have been really difficult. We'll for talk her. about that. We will talk about that. All right, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll continue our conversation about Diane Feinstein's legacy and the race to replace her. We'll be joined by the San Francisco Chronicle's Washington correspondent Shira Stein. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. 
Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. We're talking about this week's big political news. Senator Dianne Feinstein making the inevitable official, announcing that she will not run for re-election next year. And joining us now from Washington, D.C. is Shira Stein. She's Washington correspondent for the San Francisco Chronicle. Shira, welcome. Thanks, Thanks for, for having here. me. Let's just begin by hearing, of course, as, as we've been saying uh, earlier, this is not a surprise. The senator's had a lot of issues around her, not just her age, but her uh, memory and all that. But what are you hearing from her colleagues and, you know, what's the buzz there? Yeah, people were not surprised that she decided to announce that she would not be running for re-election on Tuesday. Um, but folks have really been focusing on her legacy. Um, a colleague and I actually were talking yesterday, and they said it sort of feels like this is the thing people will say when she eventually passes. Um, really been talking about her accomplishments. But in recent years, yeah, she has struggled um, with questions about her mental fitness. She also has taken a step back from some really high-ranking leadership roles. Um, she was used to be chairwoman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, a very powerful committee. She also in this last year, decided not to take on the position. It's a ceremonial position in the Senate, um, but the Senate pro tem is third in line to the president. She, she decided that that was not the right decision for her. So, Which brings up a bigger were- issue, like, should that be the third in line to the presidency? <laughs> it's so random. Yeah, talk to the framers. But yeah, I mean, you well, talk- and it's yeah. not official, but it's oh. sort of traditionally gone to the longest serving member of the Senate. So it's basically whoever is oldest in the Senate is often in that oh, position. Wait, that's brilliant. So <laughs> yeah, it's a real question. President Strom Thurmond. All right. Well, you mentioned, you know, the judiciary, and I think a lot of um, heat that Dianne Feinstein got came from her performances, both at the Brett Kavanaugh uh, Supreme Court confirmation hearings, um, criticism over her handling of a letter from Christine Blasey Ford, who, of course, had uh, accused him of sexual misconduct back in college. And then the Amy Coney Barrett hearings where, you know, she hugged Lindsey Graham at the end, really praised him. I I wonder, like, she really continues to dig in on this question of being a bipartisan actor and that she thinks it's a shame that we've lost it. I mean, do you feel like her colleagues um, appreciate that about her? Is that something that people have gotten frustrated about in D.C.? Or is, is that more an activist sort of frustration? That is definitely more of an activist and Californian frustration, I think, than a Washington frustration here. She's really respected for the fact that she still has that sense of bipartisanship cooperation. That's, I won't say has left Congress and Washington entirely, but has left it to a great degree in many years. The Senate is still a little bit more old fashioned, a little bit more bipartisan. Um, but it's definitely moved away from that in recent years, as I think most people can probably tell. Yeah, and I think she she is certainly known for uh, co-authoring bills with Republicans, being sort of chummy with Republicans. And, you know, even, uh, you know, I think her retirement has prompted us to look back at some of her highlights during her career. And I want to play a clip where this is an exchange with former Idaho Senator Republican Larry Craig, and he was lecturing her about the right to own guns. I am quite familiar with firearms. I became mayor as a product of assassination. I'm aware of that. I found my assassinated colleague and put a finger through a bullet hole, hole, trying to get... I proposed gun control legislation in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. I went through a recall on the basis of it. I was trained in the shooting of a firearm when I had terrorist attacks with a bomb at my house when my husband was dying, when I had windows shot out. Mm -hmm. Senator, I know something about what firearms can do. 
And Shira, in 2014, there was a similar exchange with Texas Senator Ted Cruz, who, again, was sort of talking down to her, lecturing her. And this is something clearly she, you know, didn't didn't take lightly and, you know, I think wanted people to know her history. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that first clip was when she was still a freshman senator. That was, I believe it was either 1993 or 1994. So for her to say something like that to a more senior member of the Senate, you know, we were talking about decorum and bipartisanship and collegiality. That's pretty extraordinary. I think even still today listening to that clip. Yeah, and I think it really does speak to, you know, how her personal experience influenced her and her positions. Um, Again, like we talked at the top about how she's kind of hard to pin down on some of this stuff, right? She was like very environmentally friendly, but also very pro-law enforcement. I think in the contours of today's sort of Democratic Party, a lot of people don't agree with her on some things. I'm curious, though, like what's it been like as a reporter in the Capitol? Because as you said, we've heard a lot of of reporting about her mental fitness, um, and it does seem like her staff has been very active sending out press releases she still goes to committee but it's been hard to get her is it the kind of thing where you're just like running her down in the hallways i mean all reporters are running down members of the senate (laughs) in the hallways all the time the problem recently has been it's a generously um phrasing this that people have been misunderstanding her or um, misinterpreting there have been a couple of these incidents in recent months where a reporter has posted an entire story or tweet about something she has said and then her staff has had to come back and say no that's not what she said or no that's not what she meant so it's just been a, it's been a pretty consistent issue she also doesn't really she still attends votes she still attends committee meetings but she doesn't attend things like the state of the union anymore in person um and she doesn't do a lot of events back in california so i think folks have I've started to notice it over the last few years. Well, even this week, it was very sad. After the announcement went out that she was retiring, she was asked about it. I guess she was in the hallway, and she claimed not to know that it had gone out. And, you know, and they kind of walked that back later on, said that, oh, yeah, she knew or I knew, but, you know, it, you know, whatever. But she was very highly protected, I think, in the end from reporters because she, they, her staff was constantly having to walk things back and make corrections. Yeah, definitely. I mean, even in that case, I've listened to the audio of that exchange with folks because I wasn't there in person. And it sort of sounds like maybe she was saying, oh, yeah, I didn't know the press release had gone out. But again, it's not clear exactly what she's saying. And that has made things harder and made this narrative around these questions of her her mental fitness even, even more prominent, especially on a day that I think some folks would have seen as maybe celebratory, you know, the end of an era, the end of a legacy and, and this this exchange she had with reporters made things um, focus on another aspect of it, I think. Yeah, well, you did focus on one other aspect of her announcement um, as well this week, which her sort of vow to not step back in these last few years and to continue legislating. And, you know, she, as we said, has really uh, fought for gun control her whole career. And she said she wants to end her career doing more to, quote, fight the epidemic of gun violence. What do you think are the prospects for that? What is she talking about there? The prospects are not good. Um, Congress did manage to pass some bipartisan gun violence prevention legislation last year, the first time in many, many, many years. It was it was kind of a shock that it happened, I think, to most people in the end. But that was when we had a Democratic majority in the House and the Senate. We no longer have that. The Republicans now are in control of the House, as I think most folks know after that absolutely bonkers speakers fight. Um, So I don't see anything really happening. I mean, I talked to some lawmakers on the House side of things um, who are also Californians from the Bay Area. 
And they mentioned some some things like uh, background checks, but I just don't see any of that really, really getting um, to happen in this current political climate and in this current Congress. Yeah. You're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. We're talking with Shira Stein. She's Washington correspondent for the San Francisco Chronicle. This is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED, go to kqed.org. Well, Shira, there's also uh, already, before this announcement this week, a Senate race for 2024 shaping up. Three members of the House uh, likely to be in uh, very shortly. Two already, Adam Schiff from L.A., Katie Porter from Orange County. We expect Barbara Lee to get in. That's that's unusual to have that many members of one caucus from the state of California uh, running against each other. What are you hearing and you know, what's your take on those three individuals? Oh, my gosh. And the fact that they decided to start running before Dianne Feinstein even announced her retirement. It's just oh, the last few months have been absolutely busy in here in Washington for Californians. I think, you know, there's sort of the sort of the establishment candidate, the candidate that folks like Speaker Emerita and Nancy Pelosi support. That's Representative Adam Schiff. And then there's the two more progressive candidates. There's the newer one in Katie Porter and the more experienced lawmaker in Barbara Lee. Barbara Lee is also 76, so that's coming into a lot of discussions, especially if this is a position she would be taking from Dianne Feinstein. People have brought up, oh, you know, Katie Porter hasn't been there very long and and all those things. So I think it's going to be a really interesting race. Um, I haven't heard any good Republican names yet. So, so far, it's really just these three who are going to be seeing. And it's one of and probably two of these three who we'll see in the general election. Yeah, I mean, I was talking to a political science professor who said we're probably going to spend $100 million to elect a progressive Democrat. Right. And and that's true, probably even if a Republican or independent does get in and sort of forces the bigger fight into the primary. Um, But. I don't know. What's your sense in Congress? You mentioned Pelosi endorsing Schiff. I think that came as a surprise to some people who really see her as a champion of female politicians. Um, Of course, she's very close to him. Uh, Is there any, I don't know, sense, I mean, 435 members of Congress, obviously, and half of them Republicans. They're not. Who's Kevin McCarthy (laughs) rooting for? Yeah, but like, I mean, do you have any sense of like among their colleagues, like if if anybody kind of is looked at as you mentioned Schiff's experience, but I don't know. Yeah, um, a number of members of the California delegation today, I believe he said it was 50% of them have endorsed Adam Schiff. Oh. So thus far, a huge more half of the California delegation has endorsed Adam Schiff. Um, so I think it'll be interesting to see. I mean, when it came to Pelosi's endorsement, I was shocked that she endorsed it all. I mean, right. she traditionally only endorses when it is a incumbent versus newcomer race. And in this case, these are three experienced lawmakers from her party, from her house, from her caucus. So I was pretty shocked that she decided to endorse it all. But speaking to the money aspect of things, that's going to be bring a huge amount of dollars to Adam Schiff, all of her donors. It's a massive amount of money that's going to be spent in this race. Absolutely. He's in the Bay Area this week uh, trying to scoop up some of that money. And we should say he's now part of the Progressive Caucus. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I wonder, you know, of course, they're running to replace Dianne Feinstein, who was not a show horse. She was a workhorse. You know, it's hard to imagine Dianne Feinstein, I don't think ever in her 50 whatever years in public life, uh, holding up a $500 hammer, you know, and attacking the Pentagon budget. You know, she was much more of a issue-oriented person. And I'm wondering, you know, what what would you say Katie Porter, some feel she's a bit of a show horse. She hasn't been there that long. She's got a huge following on social media. What's your take on her? 
Oh man, I think both of those things are probably true, but it's also true that like she has really focused on consumer protections and that's something that is a policy area that is really easy for voters to understand um, and really easy for them to relate to, to say, oh yeah, I don't like the drug prices are so high and Katie Porter doesn't like that either. And she's anti-establishment and and trying to appeal to more moderate. So I wouldn't I wouldn't count any of those three candidates out just yet. People have started saying, oh, Barbara Lee doesn't have enough money in the bank. She could early. potentially tap it. Yeah, it's a little early. <laughs> yeah. Also, she could potentially tap into the network that Vice President Harris has. They're very close allies. She also has often fundraised for other candidates because she's in a very safe district. So I think it's just at this point too early to say, oh, any candidate shouldn't you know, is going to be out of the race soon. Absolutely. All right. Just about a minute or so left, Shara. So this means that Alex Padilla will be the senior senator um, who's only been in that role uh, from California for a bit. Uh, do you think that'll make a difference for him and, and for California? I think it will. And maybe not necessarily in a positive light. I mean, seniority is is everything in the Senate. And so the fact that California will be going to a senior senator who's not been there for very long and a a freshman senator. Um, All of these are, you know, especially Adam Schiff and Barbara Lee have been in the House for a long time. They're used to being senior members of their party. It's going to be an adjustment if one of them is is elected to the Senate. Um, So I think it is going to be an adjustment for Californians to not have senators who are maybe getting first pick of everything going forward. And just quickly, uh, when you say it might not accrue to his advantage, uh, what do you mean by that? I, I what I what I just said that when you are a senior senator, you get the best pick of committees, you get more respect from your colleagues, things like that. Um, and I mean that in the in the general sense of senior in the entire Senate, not just you know yeah. the two from the state. All right, we're going to leave it right there. Thanks so much, Shira Stein from the San Francisco Chronicle. Thanks for joining us. And that'll do it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineer is Jim Bennett. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. I'm Scott Schaefer. She's Marisa Lagos. For more politics coverage from KQED, subscribe to the Political Breakdown newsletter. You'll find it at kqed.org slash newsletters. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area, its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures, then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. 
And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.